HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. My name is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, a super-duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. Hello, Mr. and Mrs. America, from border to border, coast to coast, and all the ships at sea. Streaming live from the County of Kings, Brooklyn, New York City, on the Heritage Radio Network. Are you ready for the fastest half hour on the internet today? It's the Mike and Judy Show. Spanning the globe for high-minded hijinks and low-brow kicks to bring you the best in sex, drugs, rock and roll, and nuclear fission. They're too bad for radio and too good-looking for television. And now, here they are, to pluck the low-hanging fruit of the literati, your hosts, Mike Edison and Judy McGuire. All right. Excellent introduction by Reed Kelly. <laughs> Man, I'm so excited today, Judy. This I is know. great. Every show, we are just rolling, rolling. I didn't think we were going to be able to follow up Gary Lucas, guitar player for Captain Beefheart and Jeff Buckley, and yet we did with those crazy kudzu girls. Oh, my God. And yeah. today, our guest, I'm proud to say, is legendary saxman Bobby Keys. Yay! Probably best known for his work with that popular music band, the Rolling Stones, who were popular the- The Rolling Stones, also The Who, in fact. In fact, Bobby has played with The Stones, with The Who, with all four Beatles, and with Elvis Presley, not to mention Harry Nilsson, and was a star on uh, the Joe Cocker's Mad Dog and Englishman uh, tour. It just goes on and on and on, and we're celebrating Bobby's new book, Every Night's a Saturday Night, The Rock and Roll Life of Legendary Saxman, Bobby Keys. I'm thrilled to have you. How's it going, Bobby? Uncommonly fine, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, joining us also is uh, the publisher of Counterpoint Books, Charlie Winton, also the publisher of Soft Skull Books, responsible for my latest opus. And my next one. (laughs) Which we'll be talking about during the break when we're off the air. (laughs) Don't beat me up. (laughs) And and the pizza's here, so let the party get started. You know, the the first time I saw you play, uh, Bobby, was on the Stones 81 tour, and you weren't the main sax guy. They had some other guy in in, in there, and you can't... Actually, I was the main sax guy. For me, you're always the main (laughs) sax guy. The other guy was just there for a minute. Yeah, right on. And they, they brought... 
out, you play the solo on Brown Sugar. I'm saying that guy's got the best job in all of rock and well, roll. Well, you see, we had a little <laughs> bit of division in the camps back then. We won't go into that, but uh, <laughs> oh, oh I think we should. <laughs> fight stories we love. You know, I, I know the Mick and Keith fight stories. I mean, I mean, you were Mick's best man at his wedding, and then he kind of like fucked you over, right? That's the way I'm reading your book. Well, it wasn't exactly in those stronger terms. Mick, uh, <laughs> Mick was a little more organized than I was, and I guess my disorganization at times put him off a little bit. <laughs> well, you were one of the few guys I think who could keep up with Keith. I mean, you're pretty much the co-star of his book. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's my pal. You know, we got that December the 18th, 1943 common thing going. Sagittarians, brothers and uh, brothers of the uh, horoscope, Aaron, ask Keith uh, what his birthday, well, we found out what our birthday, we had the same birthday. He said, Bobby, you know what that means? I said, no, man, Keith, what does that mean? He says, that means we're double Sagittarians, man, half horse, half man, and a license to shit in the streets. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, Never and, tried that, but uh, always liked the sound the, of it. The day is young. <laughs> Nobody would notice in Bushwick either. Here the Mike and Judy show. Can you say streets? You can, <laughs> you can say whatever you want. Yeah, we're pretty far out in the show. So somehow, though, you walked through the door and you came out the other side and you survived this whole experience with Keith and the Stones. And uh, I guess things are, things are going well now. Are they going to hit the road? Are you going to be back on the road with the Stones? Well, that's a, that's a question everybody's been asking me, and I'll give you the same answer. I don't know. I know when the phone rings and, I've you know, Keith's always told me, he said, Bobby, when it's time, I'll give you a call. Don't worry about what you hear. Don't listen to nobody. Listen to me. So that's what I do. When the phone rings and keeps on the other end of it, I'll know it's official. I mean, this is a big organization. This is the very essence of, of corporate rock. I mean, like you say in your book, and it's always fascinating to me, when you look at you know, the 72 tour, the 69 tour, the 72 tour especially, yeah. that was without a doubt the most blazing with unambiguously the greatest rock and roll band that's ever hit the fucking planet. That was a great tour. You know, that's back when we went to the gigs in a camper. <laughs> Everybody in the same camper. Yeah, we were disguised. <laughs> Tourists in New York City. In your camper. But, uh, but now, um, I mean, it just doesn't work like that. Everybody's showing up in separate cars and separate planes and separate buses. Well, like you say, it's become a lot more st structured and corporate and... Uh, there's a lot more people involved. You know, like now there's, I don't know, anywhere from 13 to 14 people, musicians and singers on stage. And back in the day, there was only, um, well, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Nicky Hopkins, Jim Price, myself, and the five other guys. Yeah, but there was a looseness to that band at the time. I think part of it's now, too, is everything's on a, I don't think it's not on a click track, is it? But everything's counted in. Well, actually, the, the, the tempos are preset. We, we spend a lot more time in rehearsal and getting ready for tours now than we used to. And things do have to be synchronized to go off with all the whistles and bells and the jumbotron and give those folks more bang for their buck. <laughs> yeah, what do you think, Do, do you miss the old days? Or do you... I mean, or I miss being younger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't we all though? Yeah, really. <laughs> Everybody except for Jack the engineer, who is so he's a child. That's good. So you're in town though with your new band, your Suffering Bastards. Band. Tell us about that, because you're playing tonight at the Highline Ballroom. Is that we, right? Yeah, we played there uh, night before last and had a good crowd. And this is a bunch of guys from uh, Nashville, where I now live. We got together. Actually, being a saxophone player in Nashville is a pretty lonely job. <laughs> Country a, music town, right? There's lots of guitar players there, but not many horn blowers. So I got tired of sitting around and uh, twiddling my thumbs. I ran across a buddy of mine, Chark Von Kinsolving, gentleman Viking, who uh, owns a, or runs a club in Nashville. And I thought it'd be good if I needed a place to play, get friendly with the owner. And he actually helped put the band together that we have now. In fact, he did most of the putting it together. 
There's a good story uh, in your book about getting uh, friendly with the owner of a club, Woody's Club, down in Miami, which seemed to be a club plus. You talking about Woody? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm friends with Woody. Yeah, and yeah, his that... club down in Miami. They seem to be not quite exactly in the rock and roll business, or not exclusively in the rock and roll business, let's no, say. No, they, they serve lunch and, uh, and tea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell us more. I haven't read the book yet. Well, um, what it intimates, and I wouldn't want to say it says as a matter mm-hmm. of fact, um, you know, Bobby's, um, you know, being a Texas gentleman, he's more polite than that pirate Keith Richards, <laughs> who just calls everybody out. And um, I mean, Keith's book is is almost as much of a junk junkie memoir as it is a rock and roll memoir. And I think you play a little closer to the vest, Bobby. But it seems like Woody's Club down in Miami was kind of a front for some. Oh, okay. well, it was a front for my rock and roll band, Woody's Orphans. See. You see, a Texas gentleman. We got paid in uh, crisp new $100 bills. <laughs> and I never ask any questions. I like $100 bills, and I like people to keep giving them to me. I find that's always the case with saxophone players. They never really ask a lot of questions. <laughs> Leave that for the singer, right? That's it. LV's got that section covered. So let's go back to Texas. Let's. Uh, when you started out, I love the stories. Um, you were hanging out with Buddy Holly, and you saw these guys playing, and your stories on the Buddy Knox band a little bit. Right. And and, uh, and then you were playing with Little Eva, one of my all-time favorites, and you got to take the solo on the locomotion at like the Paramount Theater. Yes, that was a that was a memorable experience. I uh, my first solo up there, I actually missed the microphone and stepped off into the orchestra pit. <laughs> <laughs> and that was my introduction to New York City rock and roll music. I was blinded by the light. Yeah. And how did you stumble into the Rolling Stones camp? Oh, that was a series of chance meetings. I met them first in San Antonio, Texas, when I was playing with Bobby V, and uh, we were doing a Dick Clark Teenage World's Fair, and they were on the bill, along with George Jones, and um, that was the bill. Bobby V, George Jones, and the Rolling Stones. That's a weird bill. And we were all staying at the same hotel. Brian and uh, Keith were in the room next to me, and Brian was a saxophone player, I'm a saxophone player. And we just got to talking, and their record at the time was a song called Not Fade Away, which was a Big Buddy Holly song, and a Big Buddy Holly hit, and I was kind of, you know, and it had kind of an attitude about two of these English interlopers out here trying to play, you know, Texas rock and roll. And, you know, this is just not not my cup of tea. However, they got out on stage and played it and played it very, very well. Impressed the hell out of me. Uh-huh. So um, it kind of broke the ice when I was talking to Keith and um, we discovered that, um, well, he knew that I, was, I told him I was from Lubbock and I knew Buddy and, and knew the guys, J.I. and Joe B. And that sort of, you know. Kind of broke the ice, as I say, and then we found out we were both born the same day, same month, the same year, so conversation's been going on ever since then. What kind of training did you have? Did you grow up playing the horn? Well, not exactly growing up playing the horn. I started playing the horn when I was a freshman in high school, and the only reason I did it was because I wanted to go into join the band. I got hurt playing Little League Baseball, and I couldn't play football, which was no great loss to our football team. <laughs> So I joined the band, and the only instrument left that uh, you didn't have to buy was an old baritone saxophone. And you loved it immediately? I just stuck it in my face and started blowing. <laughs> We've heard a lot of that on this show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, baritone's a monster, though. That takes a lot of wind to, to operate that uh, saxophonic device, as you like to refer to it in your book. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I didn't have quite as much luggage to carry around with you back then as I do now, so the back of the saxophone, actually, the saxophone was about as heavy as I was back then. <laughs> I like the story in your book. You're talking about playing with Yoko Ono, and you had the Barry Sax out, and you hit that low, low note, uh, which seemed to kind of kind of turn her head around. I think she didn't have such a high opinion of you before you hit that note. Well, uh, something caught her ear that was very fortunate for me. 
And uh, it was an interesting afternoon. I'd, uh, I was living out in the, the uh, county of uh, Berkshire, Royal County of Berkshire, and John and Yoko had a property adjacent to the property that I was living on. And, Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, I'm moving backwards, going rewind, but you were out uh, on, on John Lennon's uh, tear with that Harry Nilsson and that, that whole gang. You know, and you said you managed to survive that too. I mean, you're one of the only guys. You survived Keith Richards and you survived John Lennon. You know, these these you know vicious weekends, long lost weekends. Actually, John wasn't a complete perpetrator on those uh, those adventures. There was a lot of had a lot of help. There was a fellow named Keith Moon, another fellow named uh, <laughs> uh, Harry Nielsen. Uh, well, and uh, and a supporting cast of myself and Jim Keltner and other notables, Jesse Ed Davis. Yeah, these, these these guys. A lot of these guys. Well, John obviously, you know, died unfortunately. Um, but by the time uh, that happened, I think he was uh, living pretty clean and sober life, relatively. He was a house dad mostly. I mean, well, Ke- in Keith's book, he kind of paints him as a pussy, like saying he never <laughs> left the house except for horizontal when he went to visit Keith. I mean, he didn't seem like he was keeping up really. John. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that last record. I mean, it doesn't. It's not exactly um, the, his finest moment on record. Actually, well, you were you were on the early John records too, with some of the walls. I played on. I played. Well, first song I played on of John's was a thing called "Power to the People," mm-hmm. and then I did uh, several albums with John Walls and Bridges being one of them, the rock and roll album being another, and another that I don't recall the name of, but uh, I may have been a composite of John. Williams. I like that rock and roll record. That was a Phil Spector produced record, and of course he's a guy who's uh, gotten his own uh, world of trouble. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Phil produced that. Phil also produced another album I worked on with George Harrison, "All Things Must Pass." Album. Phil was a producer on that. And I worked with Phil in Los Angeles uh, on some of his projects. So you must have gotten along well with him, which didn't seem like a very easy thing to do. <laughs> well, I got along with him pretty well. I kept my distance. Phil usually went around armed. <laughs> yeah. So seems to be a lot of that. Well, I mean, he pulled he pulled a gun on the Ramones, and then of course, you know, the whole murder thing. Yeah, that whole murder thing. The only thing I ever saw him shoot was a tape recorder. <laughs> and uh, what pray tell was on that tape recorder at the time? The wrong thing. <laughs> Apparently, it um, was slightly out of tune, I believe. How did you play? What happened? You played with Elvis. What What was that like? I mean, that was, was an enlightened. Like? I, I was a last minute substitute. The fellow that was originally booked for the session had a family emergency and had to leave town, and I got a call from a piano player who was on the session and asked me to bring my horn down to the RCA studios in Hollywood. And I'd just gotten out to L.A. I was still pretty pretty young. Mm-hmm. And I went down. I thought it was for him. The session was for him. And uh, i take my horn and go down there ready to do my first Hollywood session. <laughs> and they had sheet music out there, which scared the hell out of me because I don't read music. So I had Glenn D. come out and uh, counsel me on what it was. He said, well, Bobby, you got the very opening you got the first note on the record. I said, oh, my God. Wow. So I was, he, it was written down. I said, I had Glendy, show me, play that on the piano, show me what that is. So I got that. And I still didn't know it was for Elvis. I didn't know who it was for. And so we were uh, running it down, and I see uh, behind the uh, control room window, a door open, people come in, and immediately a definite change in the atmosphere of the studio because there he was, the king of rock and roll. <laughs> So he did, looked like the king of rice. Did he back, really? Yeah. Back when he was good looking? Well, he was always bad. When was he not good looking? You know, the one thing about Elvis is no. he never sang a bad note in his whole fucking life. No matter how wasted he was on pills and, and drugs, even if you listen to these bootlegs of him slurring words, he's slurring right on key, right on pitch. Perfect. I mean, the guy couldn't fucking help himself. He was, you know, a natural. He was just one of those guys. 
He was Elvis Presley. He was Elvis Presley. What made you decide to to write an autobiography? And Charlie, how did you did you approach Charlie, or did Charlie it... can give you more information on that process? <laughs> um, well, uh, a friend uh, in the business was was visiting one afternoon, and it wasn't uh, you know this was at the very end of the conversation. He just asked me, um, did, did I? He had a friend who was working with a musician in Nashville on a book that had I had ever heard of Bobby Keys. So, you know, I said, of course I know Bobby Keys. I, I first saw the Stones at 72. I'd watched, you know, I'd been a huge fan. And I said, point them in our direction whenever they're ready to go. Mm-hmm. And so about six months later, I got a call from this uh, gentleman named Bill Dietenhofer, who is uh, the, the guy who worked with Bobby on writing the book. And Bill's a, a you know, Young guy, Nashville, younger at least, younger than us, and, and a musician, which and a musician. A lot. Oh yeah. And so basically, um, I said, you know, hell, I'll, I'll for sure I'll help, but I'd, I'd like to publish the book. I think it could be a great book. And I was familiar, you know, I thought I was pretty familiar with with Bobby's work, and and uh, but you know, when when we started doing the book, it, it, it you know there were obviously parts of his life that I hadn't hadn't you know totally been tuned into but I thought it was a tremendous um, you know it was a unique story mm-hmm. sort of as we were we were doing an interview early in the week focus on people who are you know in the band and somebody who's not necessarily the lead singer the guy out out in front or the woman out in front you know a lot of the times the book's coming from the star and right. so somebody who is you know in the whole scene. And, and one thing I really like about this book is um, there's a real sense of uh, humility to this book. You know, it isn't, you know, the book by the guy at the front of the stage. And I love it when you talk about uh, the sax solo in Brown Sugar, which, you, you know, you've played, you know, 8,000 times at least. And you say that it's always fresh and it's always the same solo, of course, what the kids want to hear, what's on the record. And you're not tired of playing it. No. And you got zero attitude. And I love that. It's so refreshing. I mean, I've met a lot of guys who are bitter because they get to be known for one thing. And 30 years later, they're still working the same hit and don't realize that it's a gift from fucking God. You know, it's a privilege. And you seem to embrace that. And every time you play it, it does sound fresh and it's great. And that's one thing I love about your playing and I love about this book. Well, thank you very much. And all I can say is I'm one lucky son of a bitch. (laughs) All right, tell you what, let's take a quick break. Let's listen to Brown Sugar. And after that, we're going to have an old-fashioned Downbeat Magazine-style blindfold test. i got a few records queued up for you. It's Mike and Judy with Bobby Keys. Down in New Orleans 
All right, and we're back. Broadcasting live from Roberta's here in Bushwick, the County of Kings, Brooklyn, USA. It's Mike Edison, Judy McGuire, and our very special guest, Bobby Keys. Yay! Yay! Along with thank uh, you, thank you, the, thank the last, uh, the last real publisher in, in the world, Charlie Winton of Soft Skull, and, uh, who has exquisite taste in authors. Unbelievable, Judy! Don't you have a new book coming out on I the like, Soft Skull Press? You know, I don't think I've ever gotten the title of my book right. <laughs> I, I have the same problem with mine. It's the official sex, drugs, and rock and roll, roll. book of lists, and um, so I believe it's the official book of sex, drugs, and rock and roll yeah, lists. See, I always screw that up, but yeah. And out in July. I cannot wait. I cannot wait for that party as well. Uh-huh. Um, I'll tell you what. Let's play a game. We have um, Bobby Keys here, and we were just listening to maybe the greatest rock and roll sax solo uh, uh-huh. in history. No? No, I'll well, tell you, that's an awfully lofty bit of praise there, and I appreciate it. But there have been a few others that are pretty yeah, well, noteworthy. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's play, let's play this game. Jack, uh, why don't you cue up the first record, and uh, let's give it a listen, and you can tell us what you think, Bobby. All righty. Yeah. Junior. Yeah. 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 Well, shotgun. Shotgun. Got it right off the bat. We need a buzzer. (laughs) I could name that song in one shotgun blast. Jimmy Walker and the All-Stars. I used to love going to see him. I don't know who else is even doing it anymore like that. Well, I don't know. I had last time I saw Junior was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, about ten or eleven years ago, mm-hmm. at some movie theater there, and it just made my socks roll up and down just the same as it did the first time I <laughs> yeah, saw him. Yeah, it was, it was the greatest. I used to go see him over at the Lone Star Cafe all the time, and he carried you know a big B three organ with him, and yeah. no, no one else was was do, doing that stuff at the time. I don't think he gets nearly enough credit as a lot of the other Motown acts. Oh uh, no, I don't know about. I mean, he gets all the credit in the world for me. I guarantee you that. There's some other fellas I had a big partiality to, too. I can bet maybe, uh, let's see, maybe we got someone coming up. Jack, you got the second uh, record queued up? Here's a... (laughs) I told you, no tricks on this test. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Jersey. Oh, yeah, well, of course, Clarence. I'm sitting here listening. You're waiting for me to tell you who it was. <laughs> well, hell yeah, that's Clarence Famous, man. Yeah, he's got that big, warm sound. Yeah, I was, I was just sitting here listening. You want me to answer questions? I was like, how, does, how do I know a song that Bobby Keys doesn't know? Well, you're from New Jersey. I love Bruce. I know you I was you very do. sad about Clarence. Yes, indeed. I saw you quoted in the paper about um, his replacement. Or what they should look for. I think it was in the Daily News or the Post. Post. Right. Yeah. yeah. All right. Ready for the next clip, uh, Jack? This is good. I mean, Clarence, the big sound. Let me get what the next one is. Aha. <laughs> yeah, that is the king of white boy rock. That's Bill Clinton. <laughs> I know you. I know you're fun in this country boy on that one. Who's that? That was Bill Clinton on the Arsenio Hall show. Was that Bill Clinton? That's Bill Clinton. I can hear. I can hear his Ray Bans from here. Oh yeah, that's Bill Clinton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's got to be the whitest shit I've ever heard in my life. He was at one of our Stones uh, concerts, and uh, I had a couple of saxophones with me, and I actually walked up to Bill. After being suppressed by the Secret Service, hey, you want to play horn? <laughs> well, uh, no, I, I don't do that much anymore since the Arsenio Hall. Show. <laughs> <laughs> and, and really, that was his last yeah, gig. And I guess Bruce wasn't on the phone calling him up after Clarence passed either. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, it's be a hard call to make. All right, we all we got a couple more. What's uh, next, Jack? I don't. He can't tell Hello you. Me. Do I look bad? Yeah. <laughs> this would be the coasters. We just jumped out into the well, same song. Yeah, but. Well, uh, K- King Curtis laid that on the record, but yeah. that wasn't King Curtis. No, that's that's not that's the original recording of the coasters doing it. Is it? Well, that's not King Curtis. All right. I don't think. Not the one I knew. Yeah. But see, we... there's other sax players that played on Coaster's records besides Curtis. Mm-hmm. Curtis played on Yakety Yak. Right, right. And uh, I, I don't... I think we should I, defer to the master. Absolutely. absolutely. I, 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 that's not, that's not King Curtis. Did you think Curtis. it was King Curtis? I did think it was King Curtis because I thought no. he was the, the guy that played most of, the, most of that stuff. And I did I did check the, his discography and he was listed on uh, Char, uh, Charlie Brown as well as Yakety, yeah. Yakety Yak's probably the most famous. Yeah, uh, would, there were some other other horn players on there. I asked Ahmed Erdogan when mm-hmm. I first got to know him because Ahmed, you know, put all those sessions together. Him and Nezui and uh, Jerry Wexler, I guess. But uh, well, I don't know, man. I, you know, the old ears are not quite what they used to be. But I did not get a King Curtis vibe from that. But as a guy, eh, you know, I'm pretty pretty clear on what Curtis sounds. Yeah, like. he was one of your favorites, right? He was the man. King Curtis. He was the man for me. All right, we got one more on the, on the blindfold test. Well, I hope I get it. I think you're going to get this one. If you, don't, if, you don't get, if you don't get this one, we're going to have a problem. Oh, yeah. That was done right here in New York City. That would be the man himself, Bobby Keys, playing with John Lennon and uh, Elton John lurking somewhere in the background, right? Come down to the High Line tonight and you hear this one. What time at the High Line? Eight thirty. Eight thirty. Oh, reasonable time. A reasonable time uh, <laughs> for, for people our age. Exactly. God, remember when we used to go on stage at midnight, one in the morning, waiting for somebody to get a fix, and the audience is waiting and waiting and waiting. World's not like that anymore. So, uh, yeah, there you are, the John Lennon's only number one hit. Yeah, that was. Uh, you know, playing with John and working with John was one of the best experiences I had in my life because I really liked that fella. He was a hell of a nice guy and a hell of a musician. Also. He meant what he said. I mean, the man, uh, man was not. Uh, well, he wasn't wishy-washy about expressing his views. That's good. I think people are kind of hedging their bets these days. You never know who's listening. You never know who's listening. Well, so, so would he be your favorite Beatle? <laughs> yes. And you've, you've worked with the, we've worked with them all. Yeah, I mean, uh, yes, uh, they all. John, because I spent more time with John. I spent a lot of time with Ringo. And I spent some time with George during the making of All Things Must Pass. I stayed out at his house at, uh, in England. Speaking of Ringo, who I, I think is one of the most underappreciated drummers in, in the history of the sport, I think you know Ring, Ringo has got this like amazing vibe to, to his playing. He's got a great feel. And you've also played with who is, without a doubt, the greatest rock and roll drummer in the history of the sport, to me anyway, Charlie Watts. Absolutely. The guy who, who, Keith, who Keith says is the one guy in the band that's not replaceable. He's the engine. And it's it's amazing. I mean, how? I mean, what is it about Charlie's thing to me? And tell me if I, if I haven't quite figured it out. Because I listen to the Stones and I try to figure out the formula and why it swings so fucking hard. And I think it's because Keith is on the beat and Charlie's just a little bit behind him pushing him, you know. And then maybe Bill is like right on the beat, like right. Well, I never dissected it down to that degree. I just know that it makes me wobble when they play. Yeah, well, it's my job to be the geek. It's your job to play the horn. <laughs> no, you know, Keith and Charlie particularly, man, have a wonderful. Uh, partnership 
You know, and that, that rhythm up there on stage is, is uh, just like a train coming down the track. And they could not be more different personally, it seems. That's, yeah, that's true. There's a, quite a diverse uh, bunch of bouquet of personalities <laughs> in that band. Yeah, one would think. We've got Brenda. <laughs> Poor Brenda. I mean, these are the stories in the book. Is, you know, you had, you had left the Stones on your own volition. Things were getting a little disorganized, as you like to say. What was the bathtub story, though? That was... Everybody wants to know, Bobby. You're never going to live it down. It's between that and the cocksucker blues. Yeah, it's either that or throwing appliances out, out the window. window of a hotel. Yeah. And let me say that should not be underestimated because I have thrown TVs out of windows. And the sound a 14-inch RCA color track makes after flying 14 stories is not to be believed. So don't knock it until you've tried it. I'm just saying to you kids I don't, at home. I don't get the musician urge to throw televisions out well, windows. Well, it wasn't an well, idea by the musicians. The guys that were yeah. filming this uh, epic uh, tour said, do something rock and rolling. <laughs> you know? <laughs> we're in Denver, Colorado, and we've just gotten in there. We kind of wiped, you know, left over from the day before. Do something rock and rolly. All right, so okay. There was not anything in the room that was uh, <laughs> except the TV set. So we just hoisted it up, tossed it out the window, and little did I know that that distinguishment was going to follow me for the rest of my life. doesn't matter how many songs or records I've played on. The main <laughs> question is, oh, you're the guy that threw the window out there, threw the TV out the window with Keith Richards. Yeah, that's it. That's my claim to fame. Well, you know, I'd say the hot chick in a bathtub full of uh, champagne is a yeah, better no, thing to follow it, yeah. you. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like that joke Paul McCartney likes to tell you. Fuck one goat. <laughs> <laughs> All set. <laughs> and you've worked with Paul as well. Uh, yeah, from a sort of what? Uh, yeah, but not really. He was there. <laughs> Bobby, I was there. You know, was it's just, there. just amazing. I mean, probably the greatest Wikipedia page in the history of Wikipedia. You know, I mean, the whole thing's just amazing. Leonard Skinner, Warren Zevon, there are all these great surprises. I want to come back to, just before we go, though, the Mad Dogs and Englishman tour, because watching that film, and I don't think Joe Cocker's got the hip cash a he once had amongst you know these punks out here in Bushwick. They probably don't even know who the fuck he is. But what a singer, but what a band, and what a show. Who has a space choir? Who can afford one? Well, I didn't even know we had one until we got on the plane. <laughs> and there they were. God bless them. Ah, man, the craziness of the tour. You don't miss all that craziness? You like it better organized the way it is now, with the Stones especially? Those are beautiful memories. But today, in practical application, it kind of wouldn't be quite... It's easy to pull off as it was back then. That's about 40 years ago. Yeah, I just feel like sometimes, you know, just that controlled tempo. And I know it's got to do with sinking into the jumbotron and the pyro. But it just seems there. it's just not loose. It's just not not the way it was. Because if you look at those old tapes that you guys playing with you and Jim standing there, you know, the only, you know, I mean, now there are like 15 sidemen up on that stage. Yeah. You know, there, there are more people in the Stones than there are in the L.A. Philharmonic, it seems, on some nights. You yeah. know, and it just seems so raw and so right. And some of those songs are so fucking out of control and fast, you know. Midnight Rambler, it's like a symphony to violence. You know, it's like the Mahler of rock and roll. It just seems it's a shame we've gone past that day. Yeah, I used to, I love watching that song. Mick used to get so upset with the stage, he'd kneel down and bang on it with his belt. <laughs> Boy, doesn't like lumber. <laughs> oh, Brenda. He did go for that giant inflatable penis. You weren't on that tour. Probably, thank thank. Actually, I was on that tour. Uh, yeah? Yeah. I didn't get my facts wrong here. The, yeah. You got giant that? inflatable penis tour? You betcha. Who could miss that? <laughs> <laughs> Once again, Judy, it's been the fastest 30 minutes on the internet today. Can you believe it? Very fast. So, once again, the book is called? 
Every night's a Saturday night. The legendary life of legendary saxman Bobby Keys, who's been our fabulous guest. Bobby, thank you so much for thank coming. You. I am entirely starstruck. And Charlie Winton, the last real publisher in the business. Good to see you, Charlie. For uh, Mike and Judy and Mike Edison, and we'll go out with one of Bobby's more famous riffs. Thank, thank you. you so much. It's been great being here. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.